Welcome to Love Babs Love Talk. You know, if it's around 9 o'clock, I'm on. Sorry I wasn't here yesterday. I was trying to get myself well. So if you hear a little something something in my voice, y'all know I got that crazy, hyper-severe dairy allergy that whenever I have some dairy in my system, it creates a firestorm and my body fights itself. But I had to get up this morning because I really wanted to talk to these folks in the studio this morning. I wanted to talk to John Lucas and Donovan Harris from the documentary, The Cooler Bandits. Now, I've been talking about The Cooler Bandits. I've been sharing it on social media. And uh, if you get a chance tonight, come to the uh, Humanity Center, right, at yeah, Yale, yeah. and uh, catch the documentary. But the filmmaker, John Lucas, is here. And one of the, the folks in the documentary, Donovan Harris, is here. And it is such a compelling documentary uh, that I just wanted to talk to them deeply and deeper. So, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. Try to get my Barry White voice going. Good, good morning. You got it. <laughs> you got. You got it. I and got so, my yes, white voice. You got your Barry White voice. And we're, you can see us all. So, if you're watching us, hey, everybody who's watching us. Um, so, tell me about this film, John Lucas. Now, you and I had lunch. I met you at your house. You had uh -huh. a wonderful, eclectic dinner party. Oh. Probably one of the coolest dinner parties I've been to in a very long time. All right. That's good uh, with you and your lovely wife. And and you had all these great people around the table, and this is how I met you. Mm -hmm. And talking about this film. And then I saw the film, and I was like, whoa. What I thought I was going to think about the film, after I left the film, I felt differently. Good. So tell me That's about this point. film. Tell me about this film and why... What, why and, uh, yeah, why? Well, the film is about four friends of mine who did a series of armed robberies in 1991. Uh, and, you know, this is around the time of uh, mass incarceration and the Clinton super predators. And, you know, uh, the narrative was that these guys are predestined for incarceration, that they're, that they're like a collective, you know, they're not individuals. And uh, I, I thought, you know, Although they were the Cooler Bandits, I didn't know them as the Cooler Bandits. I knew them before they, they did their crimes. And I wanted to make a film that kind of peeled away the statistics of mass incarceration because we're all kind of numb by statistics. The amount of shooting, school shootings we have, uh, the amount of drones we send somewhere, the amount of votes, the amount of whatever, but we don't get a sense of what's behind those statistics. So I wanted to peel back those layers of statistics and bring forward the complex humanity of the individuals behind those. And then if you see the individuals, then you might think differently about the numbers. Uh-huh. So were you a filmmaker before this? Uh, uh, my background is in documentary photography. Uh, filmmaker, no. Visual artist, I guess. But you've just felt like, you felt compelled that this is a story that you could tell. Yes. And you could showcase. Yeah, because I, I had a, you know, sort of, I, I knew these guys since the mid-'80s. Uh-huh. And how did you know them? What was your relationship to them? Uh, there was a, I was in a Big Brother Little Brother program with uh, 
I don't know if they have that here. It's kind of yep. a mentoring program. Yes. So my little brother Charles was uh, one of the guys in the film, Richard's first cousin. Uh-huh. And so when I first met, probably mid-80s, when I first met Charles, uh, everybody else, all his friends and family, all the kids said, you know, you take him, you got to take us as a collective, as a group. So you, now got, you, you, know, you got to hang with all of us. You're white, and these kids are black. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there's a... Uh, Brian Stevenson uh, yes. from the Equal Justice Initiative has this. Uh, if anybody hasn't read his book, Just Mercy, you should read it. And uh, if you ever have a chance to hear him talk or go online and see him talk. Okay, we need you to stay about, like right in front of the mic because so, you're right. fading out. Because he, he talks a lot about uh, putting yourself in proximity, putting yourself near you know, things that are happening and, and to get involved. And so I just, in my way, put myself in proximity. Uh-huh. So you knew these kids. You had a relationship with these kids. You knew them. Yes. And so when this, you didn't come after the fact. You knew them prior to. Yeah. To this happening. I didn't know that what it was going down. And I'd done this photographic series where I had the kids write essays on what the flag meant to them, and then photographed them in front of the flag. Uh-huh. And Donovan's wrote one of the essays for this, and was a, it was a great essay. And then uh, uh, a week later, he was gone. And Pucci was gone, and Frankie was gone, and Charlie was gone, and I didn't know what they were doing at the time. So uh, it was intense, and and, and uh, I just thought the story needed to be told. Good morning, Mr. Donovan. Harris. Good morning. Good How morning. are you? I'm magnificent. So now you're a grown man. Yes. You could take a you could take a step back, and look at this. How? How? Do, when you look at this, what do you think when you see this film? Because I'm sure you've been on tour with this thing. You've seen it over and over and over. You've gotten every question imagined asked of you. But when you step back and look at this, what what do you think these days? Well, we've watched it enough where I really don't even watch it anymore. Uh, and I think the, the thing that catches me the most about the film when I do even pay any attention is the impact that it had on the life of my mom uh-huh. and uh, Poochie's mom and Charlie's mom, the way we... Frankie's uh, mom and dad, the way we hurt our families, the damage we did, not only to our community, but to our families, through our actions as 18, 19-year-old boys. Uh-huh. Now that I'm a father, like you said, a grown man, I feel how much I love my kids. And I understand the pain that I actually caused my mom is way more uh, impactful than the whole dynamic of the Cooler Bandits documentary for me. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So are you all still friends? Oh, yeah. Still oh, friends? Yeah. Yeah, those are my brothers. See, when I that's what I walked away from, John, with the film. Like I, I stopped seeing the film as a jail, going to jail film, and I processed it and took it in as a film of friendship. That's really I forgot all about the jail part and was just <laughs> really caught up in the friendship of these guys because you never rarely you rarely see um, black men with this kind of bonding anywhere Mm -hmm. even in hollywood uh portrayed and so i was moved by that more so than well that was my point just to show i mean like you said you never see black male friendship portrayed on screen and i thought and and i had to fight against folks who wanted a different kind of film they wanted a more polemic or preachy film Uh and i just said forget it i'm I'm gonna make this film about friends because i think that'll be more impactful and we've shown the film at film festivals (coughs) that condemn mass incarceration and then a week later we can be in a prison screening in a prison so it, it 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 i think because it's open and it doesn't 
make anybody defensive, uh, it can be powerful in that way. Well, I'm sure the hardcore people who believe that locking kids up is the punishment they deserve no matter the crime. Did you feel, so So we have to, we can't spend time on those folks, but did you feel like, um, I mean, did you, had, did you have any nervous, nervousness about being a white guy telling this story? Yeah, that's why I didn't put myself in it. Uh-huh. Uh, there were people who said, oh, you should do a voiceover. You should be, you know, <coughs> because you have this connection, it'd be more interesting when you do the voiceover. So it's like they wanted the white guy to tell you it was okay to care about these black kids. I didn't want to do that. Uh-huh. I, I just, there was, there was plenty of films like that. It's just, I wanted to be out of, out of it as much as possible and just let the guys tell their story. And that's what I did. So when people see this film, are you, do you think they get it? Do you feel like people are getting it? It seems like they do. For the most part? You know, there are, you know, we screened it. I'm, I can't say where, but, you know, you, you, there's certain, what you get from a lot of people and they don't get is they'll say, oh, the guys are so articulate. <laughs> you know, so oh, I articulate. get that. Oh, I get that too. <laughs> All the time. You know, and 100% of the time, it's white folks. And we are at this one screening at a prestigious university by someone who runs a, um, a big humanities center and deals with, like an umbrella group who deals with all kinds of <coughs> organizations, social justice organizations. And we were outside while the film was going on. And she said, oh, I really like the film, but I really like the mothers the most. The one mother, I don't remember her name, but it's the one who sounded the whitest. Ooh. And, you know, these are people who are, you know, in positions that you would think would know better. But they don't. So th- those people disappointed me more than the folks who, you know, will say, like, oh, who cares about these guys? Just lock them up. They should still be in jail. You know, you get that kind of stuff, too. But it's those other people that I think uh, do the most damage because they, they're the sort of liberal left folks who do-gooders who don't really pay attention to, you know, I think they're driven more by guilt and paternalism than they are by actually mm-hmm. looking at what's in front of them and, and seeing it. So, Donovan, how, how much time did you do? Uh, a little under 13 years, so I rounded it up to 13 years. <laughs> 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 so when you, when you came out, mm-hmm. how long ago has it been? How long ago? It's been about uh, 14 years now. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so does this ever end for you? Does it ever become past history? No. I I think the the thing that I try to uh, give the guys that I work with, because I work in uh, reentry right now, uh-huh. I, more so I say redirection than reentry. My purpose is not to uh, help people reenter society. My purpose is to help redirect people once they do enter society. So oh. I try to tell them that you have to go through there to get here. Uh-huh. The the journey starts. Well, that actual journey starts at birth, but prison is part of my journey. Prison is part of my story. Prison is part of my history. A lot of the beliefs and a lot of the things that I have today that I carry with me, I obtained in prison. So I never want to, it never becomes the past. It just becomes a period in my life when I was younger. So we have to go through that to get to where we are now. So when you see guys, Mm -hmm. And I, I suspect you just work with guys, or do you work with women, too? No, I work with women, too. I oh, okay. With, yeah, so you work with both. Yeah, help people. My thing is to help people. Do you see yourself coming and going when you work with folks? Do, do you I, see your younger self coming and going? I see, I see my younger self all the time. And 
one thing I realized a lot, the, the question we often get when we go to do uh, a cooler bandit screening is if you could talk to the younger you, what would you say? And it actually does not matter because the younger me would not listen to the older me anyway. Uh-huh. Oh. I, I, I have to figure out a way that uh, we can kind of bridge the gaps that exist between the baby, the baby boomer generation, generation X, which is my generation and the millennials. There are gaps that exist in there. And to identify a way to stand in those gaps to start to illustrate as a millennial, eventually you become us, Generation X. You become 40, 45, whatever, and then you become a baby boomer. So how do we bridge those those laps? Well, the, the understanding that is not there that I have some answers for a young Donovan. You know, I have I have some answers that can help you navigate this road that you are on easier if you would listen to me. Just going and preaching to him or, or telling him something is not going to uh, change anything in his behavior is something that you have to show. We all tell everything. I can tell you how to be a woman. I can tell you how to have childbirth. I can tell you all of these things in theory, but unless I am a woman, unless I've given birth to a child, I cannot connect with you on that level. So people can tell me how to be a, a ex-criminal, an ex-convict, a re-entered uh, citizen, a restored citizen, but unless you have traversed that road, all you're doing is you know theorizing on what it takes. So, so do you find this film helpful? It's yes. like getting it in front of people. Yes. Do, do you find it helpful? Yes. And how young do you think people should be to see this film? Well, I, I actually just watched it again with my children. My son is 12 and a half going on six, and my daughter is 11 going on 45. And, uh, <laughs> I, I, I got just one watched, of those too. <laughs> I just watched it again with them, and uh, they are at the level where they can understand and they can ask questions that are uh, that actually pertain to the the choices that Charlie Pucci and I made and not just being there's daddy on TV. So probably around 10, 11, 12 is a good time for people to start seeing this, for kids to start seeing it. Because one thing it does <coughs> illustrate to, to, to a lot of young kids is what friendship actually looks like. So you see us go through uh, being close, being tight, being super friends, going to the institution, me getting out, uh, them still being there, the, the rift between us. You see all these tears and these rips, and then you see us reunite as friends. Uh-huh. And I think kids need to understand that. Children need to understand that that to have somebody to walk with you through a journey is, is very important. So when they see this documentary and when they've seen this documentary, what kind of questions did they ask you? Did they ask you questions? What kind of questions do my kids ask yeah. or just people in general? No, your kids. My kids just, their thing more so because they know my mom, which is their Nana, uh, they know the family. They know kind of where I come from. They are more uh, curious about why I chose to do what I chose to do. Because pretty much uh, that is more, seeing dad now, the, the decisions and the choices that dad makes now is so much different than the 18-year-old. Uh-huh. And when they see it, it's like, well, daddy, what was you thinking? You know what I mean? Like, what, 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 what attracted you to do that? What made you want to do that? So their their thing is more so on the decision making process because I always try to teach them to make the right decision to take your time and think things through and then I tell them if you got people around you that are making the wrong choices then you need to examine those people around you and see are those the people you should align yourself with in my case uh I didn't do that because I was one of the people that <laughs> was doing the, the making the bad decisions so looking around I I couldn't say well I shouldn't be with them because they're making the wrong decisions because I was one of the ones making the wrong decisions. So they're more, my kids are more interested in why I chose to do what I chose to do. Okay. There's so, only one person who hasn't seen the film. And that's uh, my mom. 
she won't see it? Or? No, she she refuses to watch really? it. Really? Yeah, I kind of leave it laying around. John Gay, I got a copy, so I leave it laying around at her house or <laughs> sitting on her, in her car, and she never watches it. She and think why? It's, why? What's she, her explanation? What's her reasoning? Well, she said it hurts too much. Oh. And uh, I think it all kind of came home for me when probably a couple of years ago I was sitting there talking to my mom, and she told me that uh, after I had got sentenced, she no, she never even knew what my sentence actually was. She didn't keep up with that part of it. But after I got sentenced and I was in Lorraine, which is our reception center where you go before you go to the big prison, she said she was on the verge of killing herself because of the actions I, the decisions I made. Ooh. So to know that it impacted my mother that much where she was willing to take her life because of my stupidity. Because she felt like a failure. Exactly. And she, that she failed you. She felt you. like it was her fault. Yeah, like she yeah. didn't give you something. That right. just some missing thing that she didn't give you. And if she would have been a better mother, you wouldn't have t- made these decisions. Exactly. I'm a mother, I know. I, I feel <laughs> she all of that. She was the last person we got on camera. She didn't want to be on camera. We finally got her on camera. So, John, when you decided to make this film, you knew these kids. When you found out what happened, did you were you mad at them? Like, how did you process? Like, how did you get from, I know these kids. They do this terrible thing, or, you know, whatever it is. And then I'm going to make a film about it. Well, it doesn't. It, it's not that linear of a trajectory. I don't think. I, I, I never saw them as cooler bandits, and then they were sort of demonized in the media, and the media was upset that they were just kids. They were looking for these grown men. They thought, you know, and so. And I remember I was with Pucci's mom, Linda, watching the news that night uh, when they they had they had him on the news and the the sentencing. And there was a story before that was about a white guy who had shot two uh, sheriff's deputies. One almost killed one of them, I think. And he got less time, and then they read these sentences. Oh. And his, I remember Linda, she just, she shook her head, but it wasn't out of surprise. It was like, yeah, well, you know. It, 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 just to see that level of what people are used to happening and feeling powerless about, you know, if you're sitting there and your son is sentenced to 60 to 150 years. No bodies on his picket, no one, no one physically hurt. And, and, and I just, that sort of thing frustrated me, you know, just that it was this, and it was that whole wave when they were really starting to fill up the prison uh-huh. and everybody was accepting it. So, it, and I never saw them as that. I saw them as friends or I saw them as kids that I hung out with and I, I never saw them as cooler bandits. So I, I never, um, and we would go down and we would visit, I would take moms down to visit and I, I kept in touch with, uh, with Charlie and Pucci a lot. And Donovan through some writing and stuff, uh, but it just—I don't know. It just seemed like I had the opportunity to make the film, but I was just really paranoid about making the right film and speaking for other people, especially being some white guy. So that's why it was just let let them tell the story, stay stay out of it. So Donovan, when you're serving this time, I've served time, so I not not time like you guys, nothing <laughs> near that, but. Uh, what do you think about? What were you thinking about? When I was, how did you manage it? When I was serving, when I was actually in there, uh-huh. I thought, I, um, so I, I, I believe that the thing that got me through my time, other than Charlie and Pucci, the support of my, one thing I do want to say is that John never left us as far as from 1991 when we were sentenced all the way up until this point. John has never left us, even mm-hmm. his. Uh, the the guy he mentioned earlier, that's his little brother, uh, Charles. 
he's still in his life actively. So usually the big brother, little pro brother program runs out after adulthood, I guess. But John, <laughs> I'm I'm a super old grown man now. And John is still there. And uh, we kind of, John, like Poochie will admit that some of the most militant uh, black books uh, that we got in the institution, John mailed to Poochie and we shared them. So John has always been there. And uh, I think what I was thinking while I was doing, I, ne- I never allowed myself to become a part of the prison culture, the prison world. We never, it, it, all, it was always me, Charlie and Poochie and then everything else. So we kind of never became a part of all of that institutional stuff. Okay. You, you survive outside of the, you survive in that world, but you don't become of that world. Mm-hmm. You, you're totally separated in your mind from that. And you never lose fact, focus on the fact that one day I will be home. And who am I when I return home? What do I take home with me? And when did that when did that shift in your mind happen? Because you're a kid when you go. Right. You're a kid. You know? Yeah, yeah. So I would say as you mature around the right people and you surround yourself with the right situations, like I was in college while I was there and I was uh, in different programs and working in different situations where you're, you are still, even though we know when you are incarcerated, your growth as far as uh, worldly experience stops. So I got incarcerated at 18, and in many ways, when I came home, I was still 18 mentally. But you still can grow within the confines of an institution if you align yourself with the right things, the right people, the right places, the right books, the right situations. You can still grow. Uh, A lot of it is in theory that this growth is not in practice until you come home. But uh, as long as you don't get caught up in the daily workings of the institution, then you are all right. That means the gangs and the fighting and the, uh-huh. the contraband and the, the disruptive behavior. If you continue along that path, then when you are uh, released, eventually you will go back to what you know best, which is how you are living in the institution. So, so John, you're showing this film all over the place. Has it made its way into facilities, prison facilities and detention centers? And Yeah, we've screened in about 30 prisons. Wow. Across the country, and tw- there's 28 prisons in the state of Ohio. We've screened in 20 prisons and all four juvie prisons. Uh-huh. Yeah, so and how was it received? Uh, well, uh, it, it's intense because uh, the guys spending so much time inside, they, they come across people at every institution. So they see friends, they see people. There was <coughs> one point where... We were in one institution screening, and there was a guy, and I remember you said he was like a really hardcore gangster guy. Mm-hmm. You know, and he'd been in there a long time. And the guy stood up, and he's like, man, the film, I really appreciate it. He goes, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to see you guys out. I Basically, he's like said, I have no value. I don't, I, I can't do anything. I'm a lifer. I'm in here. But to see you guys out is great. And Donovan turned and said to him, man, you taught me how to run it. You were here, what, 12, 13 years before I got here. I did all this time, and you're still here all these years later said, but I'm standing in front of you, a free man, because of what you taught me. You taught me how to run a soundboard and do this stuff. And then I, that's, when I came out, that's one of the first jobs I had, what I could do. And so you could see this guy's whole body shift from thinking he had no meaning, no anything, to thinking, oh, I have value, and I've done something. So those sort of moments are intense, and they're moments that, you know, why else make, make a film, I think, for those moments. So you guys are out, and you don't ever go back. Like, you don't commit any more crimes to go back. How, what? 
usually or oftentimes people recidivism is kind of high right Mm -hmm. how did you combat that well the one thing the one thing that i think that i kind of (laughs) preach i don't like to preach but i kind of preach to the people when i go into the institutions (laughs) to to talk or when i go to you know, do the different things that I still go. I go into every institution in Ohio still, except for Lucasville, and only because it's too far of a drive. But uh, when I go in there, the, the one thing I tell people is that you have to find your purpose. And your purpose, you have to focus your passion on your purpose, and then you'll find a reason. You have to have a reason to stay free. I, you, you know, I wrote that down. What's I, that? What you just said, because you said it in the documentary. Right. And I wrote that down on a piece of paper because I, I thought that was quite moving. It was deep. It is still. I thought it was Donovan or or, or Pucci who said they just said because oh, we're on camera and the film spans seven years and before, during, and after that no one wanted to be the first one to get locked back up so they were just going to behave <laughs> while they were on camera. But it's like, I, it's I just, love that 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 you have that to find a reason to once once you once you it it becomes easy once you find that reason. Mm-hmm. The thing is that sometimes we find what we think is our reason, and then when that reason is removed, so some of us. We would say that a woman is my reason to stay free. And then when that relationship breaks up, you no longer have that reason to be out here. So you return okay. to old behavior. For me, I thought it was uh, to make my mom proud. But then I seen that, okay, my mom is proud of me, so that can't be it. And then I thought it was my children when I had my uh, son, but more so when I had my daughter. And then as they get older and I realize they are years away from graduation, they're years away from no longer being in my life, they can not be my true reason to be free. You know, I can still be a dad if I go to jail tomorrow. So uh, I think when it when it became Man, apparent, that's powerful. <laughs> when it became apparent that my my purpose is to help somebody, my purpose is to be like uh, uh, to help redirect people from that behavior that we get so trapped up in. My purpose is to see somebody else successful. If I can give of me to see somebody else successful, then I'm living in my purpose. And success, you know, we have different levels of what we consider to be successful. But if I can help people define what success is for them and then help them traverse the road to that, then my purpose is fulfilled with every successful person. So, yeah, that's where I'm at now. So, John, what do you, do you think about another component to the documentary piece on this? Do you think there's more to the story, or, or you just let this documentary be what it is, and then you think about the next thing? Let it be what it is. Really? Because it's such a compelling story. And I know people constantly are asking you, how are they? Where are they? What are they doing? You know, that kind of thing. And I would imagine next year, two years from now, as people see this film again or more come across it, that they will wonder, how are they? Where are they? What are they doing? Yeah, they should have us there and can tell us. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, yeah, I don't know. I, I you know, I think it's, it's found its place and it's done its thing. And I, you know, I mean, I don't know. Probably do like a seven up kind of thing with it later. Like, uh-huh. where are they now? Kind of thing. I don't know. What was the most profound thing you learned about this process that you didn't know going in? But making a film, making this film, the story, the system, any any little thing that you just thought, oh, uh, I had no idea. Uh, goes back to that. I, there are there are people who control the narrative. You know, there are so like you need money to make a film, like. To, to make, I couldn't cut, I can edit somewhat, but I couldn't cut the film myself because I was too close to it. So luckily, towards the end, we got a documentary film grant from the MacArthur Foundation, which was real money, so I was able to hire 
uh, a father and son team, uh, Jason and Sam Pollard. As, and Sam was Spike Lee's editor for years. And, and is a great director and editor. And his son is a great editor. And they're both African-American too. So they were able to, to help me shape the film. And I trusted them with it. Uh, but the thing, there, there were forces who wanted me to make a different film. They wanted to show the, and they were going to give you money if you had Michelle Alexander in it, though she was a, we filmed her, but I decided not to put her in the film. It wasn't that kind of film. So then people didn't give me the money that they were going to give me because they wanted, or they wanted to, where's the stuff about the rest, terrible Rust Belt Akron that they came from? Because that's the reason, you know, obviously that they committed these crimes. I said, they never made excuses for the crimes they committed. They know better. So why make that kind of film? And there, were, and there are people and powers in place that want to make a film that makes people feel better about themselves and, and, and answers their questions without looking at. So, you know, it was a struggle a while because that money wasn't coming in that I thought would come in. So, but in the end, you have to make something that you're, you live with because it lives with you the rest of your life. So fought those things and made the film, you know. Huh. So... Do you feel happy about this film? Do you feel yeah. proud of it? Do you feel... Yeah, you know... Uh, you did it some justice? Do you feel like... I think I did, because I think it does, you know, it, it's accepted in different, you know, spaces, opposing uh-huh. spaces. We we sent it, you know, in the prisons, the, there was a guy, Norm Robinson, who's great. He was the uh, executive director of the entry for all prisons in the state of Ohio. He saw it at a film festival. Came up on stage after, with the guys who were there, and said, we got to get this in all the prisons. And he had to fight a lot of wardens and, and the central offices and stuff because they're like, no way we're going to get this film. We can't have this film. Why? Why Why? Why would they not want this film? Uh, uh, I would think that they would want this film because it's a cautionary tale. It is, but it's also, there's issues in it about, you know, one of the guys, and I don't want to give the whole plot away, but Frankie's situation is not a situation, you know. And the, in the end of the film, it talks about how, you know, what the governor says as far as clemency and these sort of things. And it leaves people, you know, um, uneasy. I think and, and over sentencing. And I think the film also speaks to over sentencing. But they <coughs> they never said, "I want this out of the film. You can't have that part in it. You can't say this about whatever." So so that was cool. But um, there were also in in each state is different. But every state seems to have two camps in the prisons. They're, they're, they're like the COs, the guards, and the people who believe in reentry mm-hmm. and believe in. And then there's the other. They're just animals, bread and water, you know, lock them up. They have no redeeming value. And so what was interesting to me is I would get emails from like an assistant warden said, man, I wasn't going to come to work today. I believe in reentry. I believe in, you know, having people having a second chance, but I don't see it because I only see the people coming back. So to see your film and to see and meet these guys and to see people who made it, it makes me want to come to work. And so then the wardens also forced the CEOs who were hardcore who didn't believe to watch the film too so maybe we reach some of those as well okay. so that that was important to me. so donovan mm-hmm. uh, a lot is always talked about forgiveness do you feel like you've forgiven yourself for your youthful indiscretion <laughs> <laughs> i was i, I was mean never... do you feel like you've forgiven yourself like you made a mistake mm-hmm. you cannot hammer this point forever at least in my case I had to give up hammering myself about what had happened. Okay. Have you done that? I think, I think me personally, I think I was young enough when I did what I did, when I chose, when I made the decisions that I made at 18, 17, 18. 
16, 17, 18, when I made those decisions, I think I was young enough where I didn't feel the impact on me as much as I would if I was to do something like that now. Okay. So as a as a as an adult in my forties, if I was to make a decision that was that life altering for me and all of the people that love me and for society, then it would be a much more a much heavier burden to bear. But at eighteen, when I did what I did to uh, when we committed the robberies, I'm just gonna say that when we committed the robberies, because when when I keep saying when I did, what I did sound like we did something deeper than you know, and it was deep as far as the impact on society, but it was, we committed a series of robberies. Mm -hmm. When we chose to do that at 18 years old, it was easier to get past as far as, oh, I'm such a piece of crap or whatever. It was, it was never that for me. For me, it was more so, uh, like I said, the impact that I had on my mother. So to see that uh, my mother has forgiven me is much more important than I never felt it towards myself. I never was like, Donovan, why did you do this? No, oh, I, I'm so upset. I never felt that. Okay. You know, I felt like I hurt so many people. Uh -huh. So my daily walk has to be a way that this is my apology to society. How I live today is my apology. I can't just say, oh, I'm sorry. I never should have did it. I have to show consistently in the things that I do, the choices I make to be a good father, to pay my taxes, to work a job to cut my grass, to uh, be there when somebody <laughs> calls me that needs me to, you know, I have to show to, 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 to show That's daily. That's a good that, motivational book right there, sir. Oh yeah. You, you know, I think there's yeah. a motivational book in there. It, keep, it keeps coming my back. My apology is my back. walk. I it like keeps that. coming back around. To, Don't be uh, mad if I steal it. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I told you I'm here to just give it all away. <laughs> the more I give away, the more walk. it's pouring into me. The more I give to society and the people, the more God pours into me. So uh, I think daily, as a returning restored citizen, as an ex-inmate, an ex-felon, whatever you choose to label yourself, you know, is, is much more important than how society labels you. Mm -hmm. So I choose to, to I choose to show daily that the labels don't matter as long as I can show you that I deserve the spot which I occupy in society. I deserve to be here. You know, I, I made mistakes in, in my youth, but now I deserve to be here and this is why and let me show you why. Then uh, eventually people get past the whole I didn't even want to be a part of this movie at first. I used to, me and John just talked about it coming here. I used to, I used to spin John, you know, we call him spin artist when we were incarcerated. I used to spin him. I never, I would tell him to meet me somewhere and I wouldn't show up or, you know, I didn't want to be a part of the cooler bandit thing because at that time I was, I was, I was still operating on, on, uh, I call it the playground of my intelligence. So I was still on the playground. I was still on the teeter totter and having fun. I was fresh out still a couple of years out. So, at that time, I would spend them, but now I understand that this film has helped so many people, and I'm just grateful that I had an opportunity to be a part of it. Uh, I'm grateful that John did. John forgot about the one lady that was ready to quit her job when we left the institution, and before we got down the road, she had shot him a text saying that this film and, and seeing us gave her a reason to work, and she was one that actually cared about the guys in there. So we are not just helping the guys in the institution with our walk. We're not just showing if you get out and you do these right things, then you can uh, you can walk this path. We showing that we worth caring about, mm -hmm. you know, care, care about us, you know, give it all, all. Some people deserve to be in prison. I won't say nobody should be in jail. Close down all the prisons. I never say that. But I will say some people, most people in prison have never truly been cared about. So if you care enough to go in there every day and do your job the proper way you're supposed to do your job, which is to help a person rehabilitate, which is another thing I say, because many times, how can you habilitate, rehabilitate a person who has never been habilitated in the first place? 
but we can talk about that another time. <laughs> if your job is to go in there and help a person uh, uh, redirect them towards society and living a proper life, then just do your job. So I, uh, I don't even know what question you asked. <laughs> you mean, no, it was good. <laughs> it was good. Uh, should we be hopeful about hypermass incarceration and the changing tide? Do we see a changing tide? Are people, do you feel like people are paying attention to <laughs> reentry? Yes, no. Do we feel hopeful? The new mass incarceration is reentry. Yeah, yeah. You have to follow the money. So all of the money now is going towards these reentry programs. So you see a lot of reentry programs popping up, especially where I'm from in Summit County. You see, as soon as they announce that it's a new grant available, then reentry becomes the big thing. Yeah, we, and I, the, we've seen this story. So, right. So as the money shifts, maybe it'll shift back to mass incarceration or uh, community-based corrections fighting the opioid epidemic, or maybe it'll shift somewhere. And when it shifts, all of these programs shift away yeah. from the people that still need them the most. That so is if you true. got this good reentry money going and reentry is so big and people are being directed to these programs, when the money shifts and these programs shift, these people are still there. So you have to find the people that are still willing to stay there when the money leaves. Uh. That's the only way that, and I, I really don't, I mean, reentry, everybody, not everybody, but most people will one day come home from incarceration. Exactly. Like we, got, we got a guy that just got out that I, I work with now that I'm working with trying to find something for him after doing 47 years in prison. You know, what does life look like for him? So it's not about, oh, I got to get him prepared for reentry. He came home. He has reentered. My, my goal is reentry starts the moment you are sentenced, right? You come home. The redirection process is what gets you towards restoration. You want to be a restored citizen. You want to be a citizen that shows that, I, like I said, I deserve to be in this spot that I, that I occupy. So how do you redirect a person that has been incarcerated for 47 years? What do you, how do you do that? I have not how, figured how it out quite he? yet. How old is that person? I'm, I'm not. He's in his late 60s. And, uh, and it's more. It's, it's many more coming home. So when you had this period of, uh, John spoke about the super predator period, when it was lock them up, lock them up. Mass incarceration started in the late 80s. Really, they say the early 80s, but I saw it in the late 80s. All of those people who got 30 and 40 years at that time, which we weren't thinking that eventually these people will come home. Mm -hmm. So the mass incarceration is now leading to a mass exodus of people from the institution. And society is not ready to deal with all of these people that will be getting out in the next few years. So uh, if the money stays there, then reentry works because people have a reason to work it. But if the money leaves, you have this mass exodus of people that will be returning to society with no net to catch them. So everything will come all the way back around because you'll have to lock them all back up in order to deal with them again. There's, there's a lot more interest in mass incarceration. And, you know, what should we do about our prisons? A lot of people are asking the Koch brothers, other, you know, they're, it's a bottom line money thing, and it's also the prisons are getting a little whiter because of the opiate crisis mm -hmm. and stuff. So, so people are more concerned. And now money also in reentry is kind of being shifted a little bit towards opiates. You know, it, it, now it's a problem. Though, though, you know, it wasn't with crack; it was a criminal thing, and with opiate, it's it's a mental health thing. Yeah. So you know that that's also, and then you have people who are making a lot of money now legal marijuana where there's a lot of kids who are doing the same thing who are locked up and maybe not see the light of day who are in the joint for doing the same thing that's not legal now mm -hmm. it's just a lot of it's just a lot of it's a mess so what so what i have noticed what john said that is that uh i run a, re a weekly reentry uh support meeting at a non-profit in, in akron 
So the people that are in community-based corrections or are, are freshly out can come there and get help and support from different organizations in the community. So what we have noticed when I first started doing it about four <coughs> years ago, it was predominantly black males, you know, uh, fresh out the joint, whatever, whatever, the, the stereotype of mass incarceration. But now we are maybe 95% white women Whoa. Uh, suffering from the opioid uh, epidemic and different things involving that, uh, the drug the drugs are now white faced as far as the uh, reentry support meeting is concerned. So the the county is trying to decide, okay, what do we do? Do we community based corrections? Is it a mental health thing? Is it this? Is it that? But the the thing is, uh, John, like John just said, it's a white face on mass incarceration now. So now that the white face is the is the young women who are getting caught up in heroin and, and prescription medication are catching time and coming home, I think the reentry dollars will focus more on that, which will leave the population, like I said, of the the mass incarcerated from the 80s and the 90s who will be returning. There will be no net for them because the whole net will be under the the white women and white men that are opiate uh, victims. Oh, wow. I guess that is the next wave of things because I see it more and more. The discussion and the attention toward that seems to be uh, captivating all the headlines. Oh, yeah. And yeah. now Jeff Sessions wants to implement, I believe, a, a, a national stop and frisk policy so they can start filling up some of the, the prisons again. Well, you notice this, the prison stock prices have, mm-hmm. stock shares have gone up. CCC for the mm-hmm. private prisons, yeah. Have gone up. So, so I, I'm starting an investment club at, at, one of the, at the nonprofit, too, and one of our investments will be in prisons. Really? So you have former, Are you kidding? You have formerly incarcerated people that will be investing. I mean, when you think about it, when you think about it, everybody makes money off of us but us. You know what I mean? Everybody makes some kind of, 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 some kind of dividend off of our investing in us, investing. Uh-huh. So why not us? You know what I mean? Oh, so the, the way to start... That's a to, tough one. Yes, I don't know. Yes, I don't so, know, Donovan. But it's the bar ball of no, no, no. The way the way to start combating it is it's an economic thing that is keeping a lot of us down. So if we can economically start to change our situations. I know, but you can, know what? It makes me feel like a slave master. I don't I don't, don't want to plant it. I don't want to I don't want to I don't want the master's tools. If if we if we I feel if we economically it's an economic revolution almost that needs to happen in our neighborhoods. It needs to be money focused in our neighborhoods. And if you start I, listen, to focus, I agree hold on, with let me you. finish. If you start to if you. you start to focus money in our neighborhoods, then less people will start to go to prison anyway. And uh I think you wipe the system out sometimes from working within the system. I, listen, that's a compelling <laughs> thought. <laughs> Uh, that's a compelling thought. Just, yeah, it's, I'm it's, not with it. It's, so, it's something we're but it is into. worth the discussion. Right, exactly. So it's, it's worth the discussion. So I, anything, I'll grant that. Anything, just like the Cooler Bandits documentary, anything that opens a discussion, anything that gets the wheels turning and gets these talks started, it's some it's, it's some place where I want to find myself at. Okay. I don't want to never find myself in a safe place. I don't ever want to find myself where it's all cool and it's, and I'm I'm. I'm, com- I'm 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 comfortable. I don't ever want to be comfortable. I, o- I always want to feel like we are pushing the envelope towards change. Okay. And to get involved in a conversation like that, not just with you, but it's been many people where I, I present that idea to on purpose to see what the reaction will be and what kind of conversation will it spark. I hear you. Now, when I come together with this investment group and we all agree to invest a certain amount of money and we are all uh, restored uh, inmates, we are all from that. 
when we get together, we will discuss whether we will really do this or not. But right now, I'm saying let's do it. Let's put this money. Let's see what happens. Now, quite, I'm sure a lot of them will say Donovan. A lot of them will say Donovan, you crazy. We not doing that. But the story, the, the conversations that it starts is what's the beauty in it. Can you imagine a bunch of inmates making millions of dollars off of themselves in prisons? And it's just, it's just the conversation like a, more so. Sounds than like a movie. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Sounds like a movie. <laughs> All right. So tonight the film is screened at uh, the Humanities. On uh, what's where is it? Do you know where it is? On Wall Street. Fifty three Wall Street. Fifty three Wall Street. Seven p.m. And there's a Q and A afterwards. Yes, ma'am. So that'll be good. So if you are interested in this film, come see it tonight. And free and open to the public. Free and open to the public, and come and um, be ready for a discussion. I know people are coming, uh, so it'll be a it'll be a good time. Hopefully, I will make it. Right. I'm still standing. <laughs> It has been a pleasure talking to y'all. It really has been a pleasure. Thank you. you. So much success to you, Mr. Harris. Thank you. I hope I talk to you again. I know I'll see you around, John. (laughs) (laughs) I know you'll see. Okay, Harry, I'm about to bounce out of here. I am back tomorrow morning, uh, back to spinning music. And Friday, I don't know who my guests are, but, you know, you guys turn in, tune in, 103.5, WNHH, Love Babs, Love Talk. Thank you so much.